0: You are listening to a podcast from the National. The biggest mistake we make in understanding the conflict in Yemen is simplifying it. Boiling it down to a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, or a sectarian battle between Shia versus Sunnah, or even a crisscrossing conflict between political parties. Yemen cannot be understood by those modern lenses that we use to comprehend international affairs. To understand Yemen, one must first and foremost grasp the weight carried by the dozens of tribes who each have their own history, alliances, and ties. To add to that, those lines are seldom concrete as they shift along the landscape of a country under the social and economic strain of war. Understanding the country requires ears open to the ancient past and the individual thoughts of Yemenis today, as they contemplate a future that is seldom represented by any one authority in the country. So perhaps to understand Yemen, it's best to turn to poetry.
1: That's
0: a jihadist poem recited in Arabic by Professor Elizabeth Kendall, an Oxford University academic who's just returned from Yemen researching the country's Eastern tribes.
1: And those are just two lines from a much longer poem. I I like to recite them because they're so indicative of the kind of power that the poetry can extend. You know, it's talking about lions plunging into battle and, you know, the the world has never witnessed the likes of knights like them, um, fearless and not postponing the battle. And actually what those lines referred to was simply a group of young teenage Uh, extremists who were rumbled in a safe house and shot dead in cold blood. But, you know, the poetry can reconstruct a completely different story around the reality of events.
0: This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Nasr al-Wesmi. On today's show, Yemen, as well as ISIL's last stronghold in Iraq and a pioneering Emirati woman. This week in Yemen, former President Ali Abdullah Saleh all but broke off ties with the Houthi rebels. Often referred to as a marriage of convenience, the fracture could spell a behind-the-scenes peace deal that could end the conflict with the Saudi-led alliance. I spoke to Professor Elizabeth Kendall earlier to get her thoughts on the situation in Yemen. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for asking.
0: You're in a unique position. I, I From what I understand... I think last week you were uh, in Yemen. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing there and what your research focuses on.
1: I was in Yemen, and it's a rare privilege these days to be able to travel and research in Yemen. But luckily, I have the protection and, I hope, friendship of some of the tribes in the east of the country. What I've been trying to do is, in return for their assistance in helping me unravel some of the poetry I look at in my research, I've been helping them think through their priorities and their social and political agenda, and helping them try to reach an international audience uh, with their thoughts. And so we have various projects that we're trying to get off the ground, ranging from providing utilities like water and electricity to a much more major struggle with trying to update education for them. The tribes
0: in the east of the country, um, I take these are the Hadrami tribes, uh, if I'm not mistaken?
1: Well, I work with Mahri tribes mainly, which are even further east than the Hadrami tribes. And in fact, it's interesting you should mention that because there are some tensions between um, some of the Hadrami tribes and some of the Mahri tribes. There's a little bit of a territorial dispute going on currently. And I, well, in fact, it has been for, for centuries.
0: Yemen is one of the most politically, socially convoluted countries in the Arab world. And to add on top of that, there has been a uh, war That's been raging in the country for the last three years. Tell me, I mean, you get this kind of microcosm. Give me a bit of uh, an understanding of where the different tribes stand, especially the ones that you work with, the Mehri tribe. Where do they stand in terms of the conflict that's happening now?
1: Well, you're certainly right to call it convoluted conflict. It sure is. Now, where I work in the far east of Yemen, the tribes there have never really, in general, considered themselves a full part of of Yemen as we know it today within its borders. So, for example, when I did some survey work um, three years ago, uh, most people were neither for the so-called revolution nor against it. The vast majority claimed to be completely indifferent to it. Uh, Now, nominally, you would see on paper that these Far Eastern tribes are pro the so-called legitimate government of President Herdi. But frankly, it's really much more a case of wanting to have their rights, have control of their territory, be in charge of their security and be fairly treated. And it's got little to do with being anti-Houthi or pro-government. It's much more about just being themselves. And you'll find that some of the leaders in the eastern region are although nominally aligned to the legitimate government, so-called legitimate government, they're really just conducting business as usual. Um, This is where the very lucrative smuggling routes that are generated via the far eastern coastline and uh, the eastern border come into their own, because there are certain people becoming very rich off the back of the war economy.
0: In the apparent vacuum of power, or in the you know, the the conflict that's sprung in the country. Do these tribes find themselves with more authority of their lands, or are they maybe a bit less uh, uh, um, 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 empowered right now?
1: Good question. I think the tribes always had more control over what went on in their territory than perhaps we were led to believe by the former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh who formed some quite tricky alliances with different leaders. But it is true to say that the fragile state of Yemen at the moment in a war context means that tribes are perhaps in more control than they were in recent decades and that it's actually very difficult for regional representatives of the so-called legitimate government to control them. Ali Abdullah Saleh, Mm -hmm.
0: the man was in power for 33 years. Uh, Again, you know, we've talked about how politically fractured or how many tribes and how many different powers there are in the country. He's almost just in the last four years, without talking about his reign, he's gone back and forth between throwing his weight between Saudi Arabia and the Houthis. Did he kind of cut his teeth? in one of the most difficult countries to rule in the Arab world. Is that why he's so opportunistic right now?
1: You're certainly right in describing him as opportunistic. Uh, Some of the material he came out with in his speech at the weekend talking about just wanting to um, act for the good of the Yemeni people and questioning finally his alliance with the Houthi rebels was quite hard to swallow for anyone who had actually followed his 30 plus year career because it's it's fairly clear that he has always ruled um, in his own interests or in the interests of retaining power and not necessarily in the interests of the Yemeni people themselves but he is very good at it and what worries me is that the international community will be tempted to wheel him back in as a way to try to break the Houthi rebel alliance uh, and end the stalemate of the war. But there is a danger in that, and the danger is that it will simply see old elites being brought back, the same elites that led to the so-called revolution in the first place, and we will continue to see instability, dissatisfaction, and the same old elites ruling in the same old way.
0: Professor, uh, you speak Arabic fluently, you listened to both Ali Abdullah Saleh's 15-minute speech on Monday, and you listened to uh, Abdul Malik Al-Houthi's speech as well over the weekend. Can you tell me a little bit about the language that they use and how it represents uh, their persona with their constituents or, you know, Yemen at large?
1: Well, it was clear that Ali Abdullah Saleh is the much more experienced politician here. He understands which watchwords to wheel out. He understands how to appeal to a sense of uh, nationalism and moderation, the kinds of things that his international audience and perhaps a more cynical domestic audience might want to hear. Abdul Malik al sounded much less confident. Um, he sounded more extreme, more defensive. Uh, less fighting than Ali Abdullah Saleh. And I think that speaks to the nature of their alliance entirely. It was always a marriage of convenience, quite an unlikely marriage um, on the surface, but not when you consider how opportunistic Ali Abdullah Saleh has been throughout his career.
0: In both the speeches, they touched upon uh, the idea of peace, which was a bit surprising. And then, of course, they did break away from each other. But going back to to your research, I mean, and moving forward, how would peace uh, be spelled out to the tribes, not only in the ones that you work with, but at large? I mean, how would it really reflect on their interests?
1: Well, peace would have to take account of the regional aspirations and hopes, politically, socially, economically, and actually try to find interlocutors with those tribes who genuinely speak for them. It's very easy for a sheikh sitting in a khatchu in Sana'a to claim to speak for certain tribes or for the international community to forge alliances with those key people whom it knows from years and years back, say those who left at the end of the 60s or those who left during the civil war in 1994 and think that they still hold some sway. You know, often they don't. And Yemen, with a population explosion at the moment and a great many um, young people, just cannot keep control now by those old patronage networks. And any piece going forward needs to take account of that. What I would suggest is using a better methodology for identifying interlocutors who genuinely speak for tribes and not just resorting to lists of ready-made representatives and interlocutors who may have been relevant in the 1970s or the 1990s, but are perhaps no longer relevant. We need survey work to help identify what those hopes and aspirations are. And we need to make sure that those regional communities around Yemen, around the whole of Yemen, are bought in to whatever processes and power sharing agreements are made.
0: Professor, thank you so much for sharing your fascinating work with us.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you for asking.
0: We'll go further beyond the headlines in just a moment. But first, allow me to tell you about the Nationals other podcast. Business Extra goes deeper into the movers and shakers that make the Middle East such an important financial hub in the world. And Extra Time, from our esteemed sports desk, is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on iTunes, or find us, as always, at the thenational.ae. Another great shift in history this week is happening in Iraq, as the country looks to eliminate Islamic State from occupying any of its land. After successfully eliminating the caliphate from Mosul, Iraqi forces are pursuing ISIL to their last stronghold in Iraq, Tal The battle for the city will prove to be difficult as the forces will look to avoid the humanitarian cost and eliminate ISIL from occupying any territory in Iraq. Whether this spells the caliphate's end or simply transforms the terrorism into an amorphous presence remains to be seen. To shed light on what this means, I'm joined by Mina al-Durubi, a reporter for The National who's covered Iraq's attempt to eliminate ISIL in the region. Thanks for joining us, Mina.
2: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here today.
0: We had Mosul a few weeks ago and now this... Mina, what's the significance of the battle in Tal Afar?
2: So, Nasr, um Iraqi ground forces backed by the United States on Sunday began on an offensive to recapture Tal Afar, which is one of the last areas of the country held by ISIL since mid-2014. Tal Afar is a strategic town. It's the last town before the Syrian border and was used as a transit route for ISIL from cities like Raqqa and Deir ez-Zor in Syria to Iraq. It's produced some of ISIL's most senior commanders and according to U.S. and Iraqi military um, officials, there's about 2,000 militants, 2,000 ISIL militants that remain in Tal Afar at the moment. Now, the significance of the attacks um, within Iraq. It's known that ISIL's control over Tal Afar has been very brutal since 2014. Uh, recently, the Iraqi Parliament has approved a bill recognizing recognizing ISIL's persecution of both Sunni and Shia Turkmens in Tal Afar as a massacre. The town, much of the population of the town, is ethnically Turkmen, a mix of Sunni and Shias. Now. The bit where it gets a little bit significant is Shia militias known as Hajj al Sha'bi, who were accused of torture and killings in Sunni majority cities, have been given the green light by Iraqi Prime Minister Haider Abadi to enter the city along with the Iraqi army. It is now feared that once the battles have started, it, this will ignite sectarian tension among major powers in the region. So, for example, we already know that Talafar has been surrounded by these Hajd al shabi militias since the beginning of the battle to retake Mosul. Turkey has long opposed involving those militias in the liberation process. And Ankara feels that it's going to likely to inflict terrible reprisals on the Turkmen population. And so it will ignite sort of further sectarian divisions within uh, the western part of Iraq.
0: You mentioned Haider al-Abadi he's really emerged from this presenting himself as the strongman uh, of Iraq. But does everyone truly view him as that? Is he possibly claiming a victory that isn't his own? How much does he actually take a part in the battles?
2: Haider Abadi is pledged to liberate every inch of Iraq's land from ISIL since 2014. I mean, his statements have been very bold, and he's been very brave. Um, And he's had And he has been widely praised from neighboring states as well as the West for his efforts um, in liberating Mosul from ISIL. But let's take a look back to when Abadi came to power. He was faced with the task of rebuilding trust between Iraq's government and the country's Kurds and Sunnis, who felt increasingly alienated under Iraq's previous Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki's rule, he's declared victory in Mosul on July the fifth, and celebratory military parade followed in Baghdad on July the fifteenth, which gave Iraqis a chance to take pride um, in their armed forces. His narrative uh, in him being like the brave man that's liberating the country from. Uh, ISIL. It's it's in fact driven by by the many challenges that Iraq is facing, both um, security, it, it, both in terms of security and economic matters, for which the state lacks the institutional capability to address for the time being. So this effort to create a new narrative is necessary for Mr. Abadi it, to last him throughout his last term uh, in in power, because there's elections coming up coming up very soon in April. So um, just on the economic front, for example, there needs to be um, a reconstruction in liberated towns after the destruction of ISIL and the drawn-out operations against it. Now, the government is asking for foreign donations as Baghdad does not have a single dinar to its name uh, to rebuild the war-ravaged areas. So he's using this sort of narrative of a victorious and strong Iraq when it's really, really, in reality, it's far from it.
0: Well, so talking about the destruction of ISIL, what does this mean for the terrorist organization? Will ISIL continue to exist in Iraq even after this battle is won, which it seems like it's likely to happen? Or is it likely that the caliphate dis- disappears into a kind of underground entity?
2: Well, Tal Afar is one of the last urban centers controlled by ISIL in in Iraq. The battle is important because the destruction of ISIL will be significantly Will significantly reduce the terror group's ability to regroup in areas near Mosul, or to attack launch, or to launch attacks across many parts of the north of northern Iraq. As long as ISIL is present in Tal Afar, its ability to transfer men, weapons, and supplies to and from Syria will become unhindered. And it's very important for ISIL should it wish to, pro- to pose a credible threat to Iraq to still remain in in Tal Afar. So I definitely think that, that the group will put up a fight in order to maintain its presence in Iraq, um, and it might give it the chance of conducting attacks and bombs in Baghdad and in other places too. Uh, and it's also important to mention that um, along with Tal Afar, ISIL's presence um, is still—you know—ISIL fighters are still in full control of some parts of of Iraq, especially in the towns of Hawija, which which is in the west of Kirkuk and north of Iraq, as well as towns in western Iraq near the Syrian border. And these have been, uh, the Iraqi forces have announced that these towns are going to be next. These towns are going to be liberated next after Afar.
0: Often in these battles, it's the civilian cost that is hit the hardest by, you know, the shelling, the bombing, modern warfare in general. In your story, you mentioned families trekking 10, 20 hours to reach mustering points. In the larger scheme, how devastating has this battle uh, battle against ISIS been for civilians, both in Mosul and Tal Afar?
2: It's been devastating. The humanitarian element of this battle, as anticipated, is catastrophic. Uh, And it's not just in Tal Afar or Mosul. I think it's in all over the country. Uh, But... Let's put our focus back on Tala'afar. I mean, displacement from the town has already begun. Thousands of, of civilians have fled uh, from Tala'afar and the surrounding communities during the operation. Um, the United Nations have, uh, have, uh, have predicted that approximately between ten to 50,000 civilians remain in and around Tala'afar, and while about around, around 30,000 are expected to flee the town. Families are exhausted. They're fleeing. Uh, they're checking 10 to 20 hours to get to safety and to get to mustering points and, and displacement camps. Uh, the humanitarian uh, coordinator, the UN's humanitarian coordin- coordinator for Iraq, Lise Grande, she recently said that we don't know how many civilians are still trapped inside the area while the fighting is occurring. But the UN is preparing for thousands more to, to come in the next week. Conditions are very tough in the city, food and water are running out, and people lack the basic necessities to survive. Also the city is is home to um, the Yazidi minority, uh, and I think it's important to point out that um, there's a Yazidi politician who's part of the Iraqi parliament, and she's been voicing her concerns. Uh, and urging Iraqi forces to quickly rescue the many Yazidi men, women, and children who were still believed to be held captive inside Tal Afar. Uh, She's uh, she stressed that the fate of the children who had been kidnapped, sold, or even had their identities changed are a particular concern. And, you know, it's not just the Yazidis, it's, it's the it's the Sunnis, it's the Shias, it's the Christians. So it's basically the whole of the Iraqi population and it's still believed that more than 3,000 women and men are still held captive uh, in Tal Afar, uh by ISIS, according to community leaders. So um, the, the situation is catastrophic. And, you know, we only hope for the best.
0: In news closer to home, this week, the UAE celebrates Emirati Women's Day. Earlier, I spoke to Etihad Airways' first female pilot and her struggle in breaking down women's stereotypes in the country. Salma Belushi told me how she balances a demanding schedule as a pilot and family life, and this is what she had to say.
3: It's just a great feeling when I can uh, see my names all over the newspapers. It was was really great at the beginning when from... um, my cousins and my nephews or whatever, they come from the school. It's like, oh, your pictures and your name is like as a first Emirati female pilot. So that makes good. Makes me feel good, but it gives me a sense of responsibility that it is a big deal. That you're representing, you not just Selma, you're representing yourself as a country leader or a, or a pioneer. So you have to do good all the time. You have to Set uh, an example for other people by giving and by representing your country in, in better ways.
0: And how did your family react?
3: At the beginning, when when I told my family that I'm gonna be joining Etihad Airways, everyone was like, "You're gonna be a cabin crew?" So that so that was the first reaction I always get. No, 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 no. I told my mom, "I was like, I want to be a pilot." She's like, "Did they accept you?" mom why I was like you're too skinny you know this, this kind of thing like, mom I'm not going to take the airplane on my back and fly it it's just going to fly by wire so don't worry about it no 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 but like it's, it's going to be hard on you you're, you're too skinny I was like, she goes and around and you're too skinny I was like okay but it will, it will happen by knowledge so uh, every, the most of the concerns from the family side it would be how you're going to manage family later if you get married this is, I won't say this is an obstacle, but I would say this is a concern from a caring family, caring parents. So I was like, how my daughter gonna do later in her uh, as a married life? What are they gonna do? But thank God, I've been gifted by a great husband. His name is Amr. He's an engineer with us in Etihad. I couldn't be happier than this to have such a supporting pillar in my in my in my life. He's always. He's always so caring and he takes care of the details like when I'm not home by taking care of the kids and everything. Oh, honey, I cooked now. I was like, okay, thank you very much, darling. I changed the diaper of Nasser. Oh, thank you. So, you know, these kind of things are so caring and it just, it makes me comfortable going on a flight. When I come back home, on my days off, I'm a complete housewife. So, this is the nice thing about both of us. I've been raised in a way We don't need a maid at home at all. So I clean, I mop, I cook, I I do my laundry, everything, I do it on my own. I maybe just have nanny for the last two or three months right now, but I used to do my things on my own. So this is it. Everyone have that, you know, the stereotype, thinking about how the, I would say, Gulf families, they live with ten maids and ten cooks or whatever. It's not it's not that way. That's the f- thinking which they have about me. Oh, she's a pilot. She must have tons of <laughs> maid or cook or whatever doing her things. No, I do it on my own with the support of my husband.
0: What would you have to say to young Emirati women?
3: When I joined in 2007, that's 10 years ago exactly. The mentality was different. When I joined and they had a different thinking about women in aviation. It's like something, oh, it's a big you know? No, don't do it. How are you going to do that? You, it's going to be a mixed environment. You're going to be wearing uniform. The uniform was the biggest deal for them. It's like, it's, I come from a family. I've never interacted with guys ever in my life before. The only family, male family members, that was my uncles or maybe my cousins, and that's it. But when I joined Etihad, it was a sh- cultural shock for me f- at the beginning. But with the support of my male colleagues, actually, it got easier and easier. The people who were against me 10 years ago, and they, they almost abandoned us, me and my mom and my brothers, were like, no, oh, no, 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 this is a bad family because her daughter, she's a pilot. We don't go there. We don't visit them. And guess what? After 10 years, their own daughters are in aviation as engineers, as you know, like uh, office jobs or maybe a couple of years, they will be pilots also. So it just changes when it was so difficult 10 years ago. I was like, it was, no, women shouldn't be here. She should not be in this. As a pilot, it just, as, as a human being, it just demotivated me for a while. But the way my mom, she stood against that, it was remarkable. And I thank her for that because she didn't let people affect her in a way to let me down. Okay, Selma, leave. You cannot do it because the people are talking. Thank God she didn't listen to them at that time.
0: I'd like to thank my guests, Professor Elizabeth Kendall, El Durubi, and Salma El-Balushi for joining me on another episode of Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasr al-Wesmi